Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, May the 6th, 2019. This is episode 2,432 of the Survival Podcast. i got a good one for you today. Of course, it is Monday, so it's time for a listener feedback show, but we're continuing with our new segment uh, that we've come up with. We'll be doing this one once a week on revitalizing the community. So we're going to call it Revitalizing the Community Monday. Uh, last week we talked about uh, $20 Thursdays. It's been rephrased as something called cash mobs. Uh, the person that sent it to me sent me some follow-up from the actual book that she read about it in. And I have an interview with the guy that kind of started the whole cash mob thing. I'm going to play that for you. It's about 12, uh, six minutes. And uh, it's from 2012. It's been around a while. And we have a new suggestion. What would go along with that for revitalizing communities? So this is about really building up your local community, your local commerce, and things like that. We're going to be looking for more and more ideas, but I think we are off to a good start. We have a little bit of beat up on California Day. Uh, one, if you live in California, the water might be giving you cancer. There's actually a scientific study that says that now. I'm not going to completely jump the gun and say it's true, but it is something to look at. And I don't think this one's just confined to California. Uh, another thing, though, with California is we talk about walking to freedom and people leaving. Well, it turns out that way more people have been leaving California than the numbers would indicate because immigration, both legal and illegal, has been hiding an exodus that is a net loss of almost a million people over about 10 years. Yeah, I said a million, no doubt. Um, people are leaving. And I'll talk about the bigger implication for that, and that'll blend right in with the next segment we have. Uh, millionaires apparently are moving more than they ever have in, in recent history anyway, from one country to another. And one of the, the places they're coming to the most is the United States. We'll talk about why that is the case. We're going to be talking about the old axiom proven true once again. Money goes where it's treated well. But I also think that money goes where it spends well. We'll talk about both of those things. Um, a question on 9mm ammo for self-defense in a carbine. It'll be a pretty quick one. Uh, a guy has a question about creating mutual aid groups locally. I'm going to say, why don't we just call them networks? And we'll talk about maybe more about building local community to go along with building local commerce. Same person said they were kind of disappointed in me for not talking about Spicebush. Hmm, Spicebush. You know why I didn't talk about it? Never heard of it. It turns out Jack does not know everything. I try to tell people that, but sometimes I don't think they believe me. Um, this is a new one on me. I didn't know that Spicebush was a thing. And it's going to let me introduce uh, you guys back to another cool thing called peppergrass. Uh, both of these are good wild edibles that are highly overlooked. Question on snake bite kits. I'll tell you why they are largely useless. I will follow up, follow up today. I had a question about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, on military service. And this is a follow-up. I had a pretty good Jack rant on that one about the way that people... Just basically talk shit about soldiers and law enforcement officers, for that matter, and how you can be an anarchist and not see everybody as your enemy. And um, I was pretty hard on the guy that asked the question, but apparently it was well-received enough for follow-up, and I really appreciate the follow-up, and I'll try to do this one without a rant, just a, a basic wrap-up, and it'll 
it'll fit really well into our song of the day. We're going to be going into fairy tale week this week. I'll go ahead and spill the beans on uh, the uh, the song of the day today. If we're going to have a week that's all about songs inspired by fairy tales, you know someone had to make the list, right? Metallica with Enter Sandman. That'll actually be a pretty good blend into uh, the way that society is controlled and actually will lead us pretty well into priming tomorrow's show. So it's going to be a great show today. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one, is Western Botanicals. I believe that herbs are the kinder, gentler way to deal with many of the things life throws our way. And my, my choice when it comes to whether it's raw herb or prepared uh, preparations is Western Botanicals. Why? Well, number one, they've been a sponsor of this show for almost nine years now. That's that's loyalty. Number two, if if you're getting it from Western Botanicals, it was either organically grown or wild crafted. That's another reason. The big reason is they're not into snake oil sales. I, I mean, I was really really happy when they found us way back in the day, so to say, and they said they wanted to sponsor the show because I wanted someone like this. But everybody that seems to be in that industry just seems to be selling snake oil. You know, this cures cancer or whatever. These guys are just, they're just producing really high quality product and they give away their premium membership value of 50 bucks to members of the MSB, which effectively pays for your first year of membership in the MSB. So it's just who I would go to. And it, as I always say about them, real people that really care, that really answer the phone and really help you when you call them. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. If it's legal and herbal in the United States, they have it. Next up today, ready-made resources. Love ready-made because they're the company that does what they say and says what they do. All your resources that you need, ready-made, ready to go, go point, click, and buy on their website. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. From the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens and everything in between. If it will help you with your prepping and self-reliant living, you will find it at the company that says what it does and does what it says, readymaderesources.com. With that, let's go ahead and uh, dig into this. I want to start out with... Um, Kind of follow up on what this new segment's all about, first of all. Um, we, we have talked before about revitalizing local communities and small towns. And I think this is something that needs to be done more and more in the United States. And I'll tell you my, my evil Jack plan <laughs> for taking over the universe with this. The more you can build up small communities into resilient communities, the more they become more and more autonomous and basically tell state-level government, county-level government, and federal-level government to go screw. And there's a lot of ways that the government, the larger bodies of government can get in the way of that, but there's also the, the concept of the more moving parts you have, the harder something is to control, and how much can you really push on a local government when the local government refuses to do anything to help you. And I think the more you create independence in people, the more independent the nation will be as a whole. So it might seem to be uh, counterintuitive that if we have all these little groups doing whatever the hell they want, where they're at, and having you know as much autonomy as possible, that that would weaken the whole. Well, I think it would weaken the power structure. And boy, what do we talk about that tomorrow? But it will actually strengthen the resiliency because you have more resilient people within the totality of the United States. So we're talking about making local communities more economically viable and socially vibrant. Uh, I think one of the real tragedies that's happened with a lot of like the social justice warrior crap is that we have 
shied away from using words that might be maybe kind of associated with that crap. Uh, so we, you know, when we don't want to use the word social, we, we kind of take away a lot of what living's really about because we are social people. We can be social without socialism, right? Um, and if you want to attract people to live in your community, if you, if you want to keep people from leaving, not only do they have to be able to pay their bills and live a decent life, but they have to have a quality of life. So this is about more than just economic vibrance, but how do we make a place somewhere that people really want to stay? And Christina has been great at you know, priming stuff with this. Here's what she said. So I got the book, This is Where You Belong, for the public library and reread the section called Buy Local. The thing I remembered as $20 Thursdays was actually called a cash mob. I'll include a link to a website, website about it. Um, and what this is, there's actually a website for this called cash-mobs.com. And so the concept actually came from flash mobs. And if you think back at 2012, flash mobs were pretty damn big. And, you know, people show up and do a dance or something like that. And that gave this one guy the idea, hey, what if we did this? So what I want to do now, I want to pause and play this, this interview that's on the front page of this website for you uh, with two different people. One is a shop owner who had the experience of having a, a cash mob show up, and the other is kind of the guy that got the whole idea. And I'll come back and talk about how this might really be a powerful thing. And then I want to move into... Because it's really recycling last week's segment. I want to move into, like, what do you do next? So let's go ahead and hear this interview. I've become obsessed with watching flash mobs on YouTube. Crowds of people gathering on different cities doing Michael Jackson's thriller. So much fun. But we know uh, flash mobs can be nefarious. Remember when uh, people were flooding convenience stores to shoplift. Well, now cash mobs are starting to catch on. Crowds showing up at locally owned businesses to shop. Since starting last year, cash mobs have been organized in about 25 states and Canada. Annie Johnson is co-owner of Anything Goes in Warwick, Rhode Island, a store that features the work of local artists, and was the site of a recent cash mob. Annie, what happened? Did you get a warning they were coming? No, no, it was a total surprise to me. We have a local organization called letsbylocal.org. They had everybody meet in another location and The next thing I knew, my parking lot was filling up. Holy ma What did you think? I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe this is really happening. <laughs> so how much did, uh, how many people came in and what, how much did they spend? We had about 30, 35 people come to our store all at once, which is, we're a very small store, so that, that was amazing yeah. unto itself. People commit to spending $20 a piece. And some spent a little less, some spent a lot more. The whole idea is just exposing your business well, at a particularly slow time of year. Well, I was going to say, you know, what they spend that one day is one thing, but, you know, are you, have you felt reverberations from this? In other words, now there's 30 people that maybe are more familiar with your store than they uh, might have been before. Absolutely. We've already had people return. We have people who have come because they were unable to make the cash mob but heard it was in our store and they want to support the businesses that are cash mobbed. And what about you? I mean, I'm imagining now there may be some, you know, 
passing it on that you want to do? Would you want to be in a in oh, a mob? I have been in one before. I'm going to my second one next week um, in Wakefield, Rhode Island. We have one meeting at five o'clock. We want to do it on a monthly basis. We just want to keep paying it forward. Do you think it really makes a difference? Absolutely. But it's very impersonal to always shop in a big box store. We want to go back to putting our money in our neighborhood and just having people know the shopkeepers and know each other. We are a community, and we, and we want to support that. Andy Johnson of Anything Goes in Warwick, Rhode Island. Andy, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, this whole thing started at a store called City Wine Merchant in Buffalo, New York, back in August. It was Chris Smith's idea. He's an engineer. He also blogs at Art Voice. He joins us from WNED in Buffalo. Chris, how did you come up with this? Well, how about we just try and support local business? I mean, why do we always need a discount? I understand that in in the economy we have today that, you know, we need the scale that big box stores can give us for the things we need. But for the things we want, why can't we support small local business and maybe pay full price once in a while. Your first one was a wine store. What happened? Uh, we had about 100 people that came in, and they spent somewhere between 15 and 30 bucks each. And we also got some coverage in the local Buffalo News. Uh, WNED and other radio stations came out, and it, it really helped him grow his business in some way. It kind of took off after that. We've been doing one a month. Well, you've been doing them, and they've been spread across the country. Uh, someone has written up a list of cash mob rules um, that the mob date must be announced a, a week in advance on Twitter. The location it must be announced, but maybe not the specific business. We just spoke to Annie Johnson of the Anything Goes store in Warwick, Rhode Island. She said she didn't know. It was sort of a surprise and a very pleasant one. So give us what some of your, you know, your rough rules are for a successful cash mob. Well, we, we do things a little differently. We ask people to nominate businesses on Twitter and Facebook. And then once we've, we've accrued enough nominations over the course of a week, we ask people to come back and vote. The top three businesses that receive the most nominations then go up for a vote, and the winner is selected. I contact the business ahead of time to let them know uh, that, you know, they're going to have some sort of business surge. Because, you know, since the idea is for them to build a relationship and, and whatnot with new customers, I don't, I don't want them to be understaffed or under-inventoried. So we, we try and give them a little heads up. Well, and we understand that some cities do require that everybody involved has to meet at a locally owned bar <laughs> afterwards to celebrate. But this is spread to Knoxville, Tennessee, where the mayor, uh, Mayor Tim Burchett, decided to do it. Uh, he organized the, the flash mob at a five and dime store. And he said, you know, we've got to bring attention to local businesses. Do you worry, though, that it may have the same life of a Groupon? You know, that it may bring a lot of people in for the fun of the one day and then fizzle out. All I know is my experience locally is that after the cash mob happens, uh, we've, we've done now done six of them, and there's a seventh one scheduled. Each business has reported that they've been able to maintain some relationships with these customers. They've been able to build their business a little bit. From where I sit, it's not just about the money that comes in that day. It's about a real small business that, that doesn't have a lot of money in a marketing budget. They get a little coverage on television and radio and print, some earned media coverage they wouldn't normally get that allows them to establish themselves a little bit more. I try and stay away from the day of impact and, and try and measure more people thinking about investing in local businesses hmm. to make them once a month think that you don't have to go to Target for everything you need and everything you want. There's courageous entrepreneurs in your neighborhood who are trying to make a go of it 
and to just think about it. I think if that's what we accomplish, then I, I think it's a win. Well, Chris Smith, you know what I would love you to work on? So you've got this terrific cash mob idea going. You said you were inspired by watching flash mobs. Perhaps you could combine them so that everybody could show up to shop at a store and perform Michael Jackson's Thriller. <laughs> We'd like to try it. We've thought about doing that this month. Uh, you know, what can we do to make it a little bit more fun? And maybe we will. Maybe we will. Chris Smith, engineer and blogger at Art Voice in Buffalo, who came up with the idea of cash mobs uh, this past summer, and it's just spread like wildfire. Chris, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, so uh, you don't know me. That's, that's his email address, right? You don't know me sent me this week's idea, which I think pairs beautifully and it's supposed to with the concept you just heard about. I want to read it, though, because I think... What you just heard dispels one of his concerns. It doesn't make his suggestion any less valid, though. Okay, So he said, free Facebook Fridays. After $20 Thursday, maybe the next week give Facebook a shout-out to promote the business. If each member puts a unique post out about the business after doing business with them, this should shine a light locally and drive a little traffic after the initial $20 Thursday drive. Great idea, but then he says this. I don't know around my town, 20 extra people just once coming into a business and spreading 20 bucks they normally wouldn't have isn't very noticeable. Um, I think it would be, and I also think it would probably be, you know, if you do this right, maybe you end up with more than 20 people. You know, you, you're, you're talking about here, uh, one of the businesses mentioned was a wine shop, and about 100 people coming in spending, you know, 15 to 30 bucks, uh, that's... That's a significant increase. You know, you're talking two, three thousand dollars in sales that would not have happened otherwise. And again, I do think that we need to realize that we're talking about smaller shops for this. We shouldn't be doing this going to freaking, you know, some chain store or something like that. Like this should be, you know, Joe Blow's hardware store, not Ace Hardware. Right, uh, though. So I think some of the Ace Hardwares are kind of locally run franchises. But you get my point. We would we would do this at a locally owned hardware store uh, for tool time. <laughs> right? Okay. Not Lowe's. Makes sense. So a lot of these stores, a few hundred dollars hitting the books that wasn't going to hit the books does help them. The other thing that you heard is the pull through, the follow up. Like, hey, I didn't realize this place was so cool. Because I think what happens if you put together a group like this, and we'll talk more about putting groups together in general soon, what happens is you go into this place, and instead of employee number 61395.7, there's Bill. And Bill's there every Thursday. Bill is a co-owner or owner or manager of the store, and Bill is always there. And now we know Bill. Where if we go to Walmart, we probably don't know the person we're checking out with. And if we go next week, even at the same time, odds are we're not talking to that person again. And maybe we really don't want to. So I think that there's a much bigger thing going on here. Now, you don't know me's idea of following up a cash mob with a social media push, I think is awesome. And I think there's a couple things that could be done here. Number one... If that business has a Facebook page, and they probably do, but if they don't, you make one for them. So everybody that says, hey, we went and we had a great time, and here's what was awesome about the place, and shares it with their friends and family, needs to tag that page. Everybody in that group like their page and follow their posts. 
Now you're starting to build something. Now let's take this whole idea to another level. Again, we're not talking about Dallas. We're not talking about Fort Worth. It's a totally different dynamic in these big cities with millions of people. We're talking about towns, you know, anywhere from a couple thousand to 20,000 people, which is the vast majority of towns and communities in America and the majority of the ones that need this revitalization. How many businesses are there in a town that size that fit this model? 50, 100? I mean, you're almost to a point if it's like 50 businesses that really are good for this, They're all getting one of these every year. This isn't something we do once and go away. So I think that there's like, this is the beginning. And I want to hear from you. TSPC in the subject line. Just make sure you're being clear that this is something for, you know, developing and revitalizing local communities. I'll put it into the folder I have made for that in my email program. And I will start using these. And let's go weekly. Let's come up with ways to do this. And then if any of you implement this, please tell me. Because I think that we, we are on to something here. I do think this is a great idea. Um, I'm surprised that this was uh, you know like officially a thing all the way back in 2012, and we never really heard of it till now. Pairing this with things like local currencies, some sort of local business incentive program. You know, we talked about doing things with stamped U.S. dollars, and there's a problem there with some technicalities on legal being legal. It's legal to stamp it, but it's not legal to use the bill to advertise. So it's almost like an under-the-table type thing. I bet there's some other ways, though, that we could come up with loyalty programs that would get us to the point where these local businesses would have some sort of way to make it beneficial for both sides to, to frequently shop there. You know, a loyalty program is something that's kind of difficult. It's very difficult for a small company to run. But what if it was a consortium? Here's, here's an idea that you guys can maybe start batting around and maybe formalize it a little bit better. What if cryptocurrency was involved, and not so much as a currency, but as a, a, a ledger? So, for instance, with ARK now, which is still one of my favorite you know, low-dollar, low-value crypto coins, um, it's a proof of stake. doesn't require mining. Uh, it returns value, but you can clone it, like, really easy and customize it to do anything. So what, because I always said that one of the things that ARC could be, in addition to basically maybe some sort of company-controlled currency for internal purchasing, uh, would be used for a loyalty program. So what about a consortium loyalty program where people earn some sort of value, maybe even spendable currency? So instead of having Ithaca hours, you have whatever your town name is, coin. And then it's only usable for up to, I don't know, 5% of a purchase or something like that. And it's earned through this consortium in a loyalty program that would actually be pretty easy to run because of the way cryptocurrency works. Can I set that up? No. But I bet you there's dozens and dozens of people that could. And that's just one more idea. So think about this stuff and think about the fact that we can either continue to sit on the sidelines around the three-ring ass-clown circus. And it not it interesting that you have the, the House and the Senate and the presidency, and we think of circuses being three rings, right? And you can sit there and you can root for your ass-clowns over the other ass-clowns. You can chant slogans, or you can actually disrupt the system 
by building resiliency into your communities. That's how powerful this is. Moving on to why you might want to move to one of these small towns to get the hell out of a place. How about John and Moore Park sent me two things on California this week. And one is, study estimates, 15,000 cancer cases could stem from chemicals in California's top water. A new study finds the chemicals in the tap water, like arsenic, hexavalent chromium, and uranium are hidden cancer threats in our faucets. Reading CNN. Um, and he says, Berkey, anyone? And I just want to point out, if you want to filter arsenic, you want to use a Berkey for that. There's two sets of filters. There's the filters everybody has, the black top filters, and the bottom filters are the ones that go on the bottom side of a Berkey, and they remove things like arsenic and fluoride. So I don't run those because I've had my water tested, and I'm on well water, and I have no arsenic and, and, and a, like a tiny, itty-bitty trace amount of, of fluoride. But what this study said is there is no safe level of arsenic in water. I don't know if that's completely true or not, um, but it's, it's probably true enough. Anyway, I wanted to bring this to your attention because here's the thing. It is you know, a little bit of kick California Day, and California is easy to kick, and we'll save that for the next story, which is much easier kicking uh, available to do. But I don't think this is a California problem. A lot of the problems here is from agriculture. We have agriculture all over the country. And a lot of it is from natural formed arsenic. So I think there's a potential for this type of thing to be the case all over the country. Now, I also want to temper this. This is over like a lifetime, 15,000 people over a lifetime. And then maybe, because we don't know, the study says it could be, and then is, if, there, you know, if you need a reason for the Electoral College, other than that's what the Constitution says, the population of California is of almost 40 million people. Though that number is going down in reality. We'll talk about that in a minute. But 40 million people, and we're talking about an increase of 15,000 people, um, it's a pretty tiny percentage. So this isn't a reason to go out and start freaking out and what have you. But, you know, I say it's not significant statistically, and I didn't really say that. I'm saying it's not, it's not as big as the number itself sounds, stretched across 40 million people and across lifetimes, and then not being 100% sure. And, and being more of increased risk rather than the cause of. Would that person who, due to arsenic poisoning or, and ground-based uh, you know, ground uh, radioactive material, who developed cancer, have developed cancer anyway? Might they have simply developed the cancer a little bit later in their life? We don't know. This is not a definitive, absolute, we know study here. Like, seldom are they. Um, but... If you're one of those 15,000 people, it's pretty significant. And I think when we can simply pay attention to the water we're consuming and drinking and allow ourselves to reduce our risk, even a very small amount, it just makes sense to do. So, I, I, again, I, we're going to kick California pretty hard in the head here uh, in a second. I don't want this to be really about California. I, and I got a link to the article. The article gives a link to the actual study. And to me, this is sound data. And it's not being, maybe the media is a little bit hyping it, but the study itself is pretty solid, pretty valid. And it's just another case for making sure you know what you're drinking. And this is why I've always said that filtering water is a great idea. And not filtering water because the shit is the fan, filtering water all the time. 
I had some of the best water in the world at my place in Arkansas. It was, I mean, literally some of the best water in the world. But there was always a potential for the well to be contaminated. So while I didn't run the bottom filters, I ran the top filters for Berkey. And that way, if something happened, you know, I didn't find out by getting sick. I just never found out because I didn't get sick. That, that seems like a much better way to go for me. So this is an L.A. Times article, um, and I'm going to kind of pair this with a more international story as well. Both of these are also from John and Moore Park, who kind of threw a bazillion stories at me, and these three were that good that I even gave him more more segments than, than, than one per Usually I limit it to one per person on a show, but these go together really well. So this is the most important sentence in this long article, and it's the only one I'm going to really read for you. The article itself goes through a bunch of reasons for California's actual decline in population, including that a lot of the immigrants coming to California now are coming from Asia rather than Mexico. And because of that, they're more educated, and educated women have less children and wait later in life, and blah, 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 blah. But you can make all the excuses you want Because in general, we have increased the education level and the upward mobility of women throughout the entire United States, and some states are growing, what's actually happened in California? Okay, here's the sentence. About 5 million people moved here from other states from 2007 to 2016, while about 6 million left, according to data from the American Community Survey. 1 million net loss. And the difference has been hidden and made up by immigrants, both legal and illegal, from Asia Pacific and a lot more from South America and Mexico than this article wants to admit, because it is the L.A. slimes. <sighs> this just tells you what you already knew, because all you had, and I've been saying this since 2009, all you had to do was price a U-Haul one way from L.A. to Dallas, and one way from Dallas to L.A. The cost of the U-Haul one-way rental from Dallas to L.A. is about half of L.A. to Dallas. Because they know if, that, if they send that U-Haul from Dallas out to L.A., that they won't have to wait long, and they can get that truck back to Dallas and get paid to do it because somebody's going to want to go to Dallas and get that truck back to its, its point of origin. That if you are going the other way, though, from Dallas to L.A., it ain't come, it, it, it's, you know, or I'm sorry, from L.A. to, from, from LA to Dallas, that truck, getting that truck back to L.A. is going to be hard because the numbers aren't there. That's all we needed to do to do this. But let's take this to another level. And because what this is really about is money going where it's treated well. And right now we have proof of this on an international level. The article that pairs perfectly with this is uh, by Alexander Sazanov, and it's on Bloomberg. And the title of the article is Millionaires Flee Their Homelands as Tension Rise and Taxes Bite. So here's the... Again, I don't like to read these long articles to you. I put links to them if you want to read the whole thing, you can. But here's the five nations that have had the most... Millionaires move to them, um, the top five, in order. Number one, Australia. Number two, the United States of America. Number three, Canada. Number four, Switzerland. And believe it or not, number five, UAE, or United Arab Emirates. I'll tell you why I think that's the case here in just a second, one of the reasons that is. 
because uh, that seems like an oddball there. And it is a smaller force. Switzerland and UAE are like way down the list from Canada, United States, and Australia. Now, the nations that have had the most rich people get the F out of Dodge and leave are France, and this is in ascending order, so France lowest, Turkey of the top five, uh, India, Russia, and the number one nation that's had its wealthy people haul ass is China. Now, China's interesting because... It's kind of hard to get the hell out of China as a millionaire. It's not hard to necessarily get into one of these other countries when you have that kind of money, but it's a little bit harder to leave and take your shit with you. But yeah, they're figuring out how to do it. In fact, China has had almost double the number of people haul ass with money than Russia. And then Russia a little bit better than India, India a little bit more than Turkey, and France down at the bottom of the list of the top five. So... Let's talk about what's going on here. There's the old axiom is that money goes where it's treated well. And love them or hate them or not care in between, Donald Trump's policies, specifically toward tax on business, is working. That's why the U.S. is the number two place for millionaires to move to, the United States. One of the reasons. Um, Australia is... Taxed a bit harder than the U.S. I think the only reason, though, that Australia are actually taxed a little bit less than the U.S. for business level taxes, um, higher at the individual level. But I think one of the reasons that Australia is kind of you know, just, just noses out the U.S. for the number one place people are migrating to with money right now, it's easier to go there. Even with money, this is it, it's actually amazing that our nation is the second highest. The, the fact that people want to is one thing, but the ability to do so is another. It's complicated to come here, even when you have money. It's easier with than without, but it's complicated. But if you look at the quality of life in Australia, the United States, and Canada, and you, you put all of this, this bullshit that's on TV aside, and you specifically look at the quality of life in those three countries for people with a net worth over a million dollars, Money doesn't just go where it's treated well. Money goes where it spends well. Money goes where it spends well. So if you're living in Russia or China, there's certainly advantages to being wealthy versus not wealthy. But the level of what you can have as a wealthy person in the United States, Australia, Canada, and other developed nations is, is much, much greater. Additionally, one of the things you can do in this country that's difficult to do in China is you, if you have money in this country, you can make more money in real estate. It's one of the greatest opportunities in the world is owning property in this country that other people, in fact, pay for and then having tax advantages where you can have cash flow, make money, and become very wealthy on real estate in the United States and pay almost no taxes on that money. So that makes it also very attractive to come here. But it's about money spending well, and being treated well. We cut the shit out of our corporate tax rates. And I honestly think it would be fine if we cut our corporate tax rate to 10% flat, or even lower, and then cut the bullshit where all these companies like General Electric and Amazon are paying nothing in taxes. I don't care, honestly, who pays nothing in taxes. I'm like, good. I don't care, because just because I get money stolen from me doesn't mean they should get stolen from them, and I think all tax is theft. 
But if you want to play in their world and make this system work, have a really low flat tax rate for all corporations, everybody pays the same, and make it so easy to do that it's not worth a team of accountants to try to shave one point off of it. Because then people, that's, and they should do that with personal income tax too. 10% for everybody. 10% for everybody on actual income. Again, I want zero, but I'm being realistic here. We could run the country just fine on that. Tax revenue would actually, over time, go up over where it is now because of all the money that right now is being shoved in a ways where it doesn't get taxed and underground economy and everything. If you make the 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 if you make doing business above board easy and low cost, then people even begrudgingly will pay it. But that that's what's going on right now. So now, what does that have to do with California? California, for us, is basically, I see it as the United States version of Venezuela. And it's heading that way awful fast, whether people want to admit it or not. Now, there's certain things that will mitigate it because it is in the United States of America. And you can talk about how big the economy is, how wonderful California is, and weather and natural resources, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and, and, and Venezuela, a decade ago, was the third wealthiest country in the Western Hemisphere. The third wealthiest country in the Western Hemisphere. And look where it is today. Now, I'm not saying California will be where Venezuela is tomorrow morning because, well, again, it is part of the United States. It does get a lot of benefit from that. But they are the people that have gone absolutely overboard, full tilt nuts with regulation and social programs. And there's more homeless people there than there is just about anywhere else in the country. I'll bet you, if you had honest numbers, there's more homeless people in California than any other two states in the United States put together, especially if you say no West Coast states. So Oregon and Washington don't get to play the game. And I'll bet you there's probably more homeless people in Washington and Oregon and California who have all done a lot of the stupid shit than there is in any other 10 states combined. I'm just pulling that out of my ass. I could be wrong, but that's my gut. Because I've been to these states, and I've seen the homeless population. And I've seen you know people that are crapping in the streets, needles laying in the streets. And this is their version of utopia. It sounds a lot like you know Venezuela. It really does. Now, here's the thing that still makes the United States where you want to go to if you're in any of these other countries where people are getting out with money, we are still not quite what it should be, but we are still a republic. And if I don't want to deal with the stupidity of California, I can go to Texas, or I can go to Florida, or I can go to Tennessee, or I can go to Kentucky, or I can go to Arizona, or I can go to California if I want that. Because you can have a pretty good life in California if you got a lot of money. They're just going to take a lot of it away from you. But when we look at this totality and this movement, what we're seeing is internationally, we're seeing the globe fo function a lot more like a republic. If you have enough money, you can be mobile, you can go somewhere else, and people are choosing to do it. And they're going through a lot more hell to get it done than we have the ability to do right here in the United States. That's why I'm so big on walking to freedom. If you really don't like what your state's doing, as long as you can find a state that you like what they're doing better, go there. Go there. I know it's not that easy because family, jobs, etc., but it's free to look. 
It's free to check it out. There's a hell of a network within TSP of people that will tell you what it's like. Get on Zello and talk to people about where they live and find out what it's like there. And by God, if you're going to do it, I really I can't overstate. Don't take a one-week vacation to a place and make a decision on that. You know, go there and spend some time there. You know, take a, take a sabbatical from work and go live there for three weeks. Or, you know, take multiple trips and, and get to know the place and make sure you really do want to be part of what's going on there. But we do have a freedom in this country. And it will shock you if you start dropping things into Excel with the cost of living, taxation, etc. Plus, there's something that in this community, it's true every, of every human being, because freedom is something we all define differently. But when it comes to this community, with so many of the things that we want to do, from a homesteading, agricultural, uh, you know, things that involve water, for instance, it just knocks out a bunch of the western states in some ways. Um, what is the value of being able to do what you want to do? with your land, with your property, of being able to do what you want, to be able to say, I want a shed. And just make a phone call, and somebody comes out and makes a shed. And you don't have to spend three months begging somebody to let you put a shed on your property. And when they finally do, they go, well, yeah, I know you wanted a 14 by 16 shed. But the biggest thing that we can give you a permit for is 10 by 12. I mean, what is the value in that? And so it's it's a much bigger thing. And I think, again, we're seeing it now at the global and the, 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 the federal level. And money goes where it's treated well and it spends well. And that's where we're seeing a lot of people get out of right now, though. A lot of wealthy people went to a lot of these less developed nations, including places like Venezuela. Venezuela at one time was a big destination for U.S. expats in retirement because your money went so much further. So it spent well in that it, it, you could buy a lot with it. But now spend well in a situation where reality is coming home to roost for these nations is can you get anything at all? Because even if the can of dog food is less in Venezuela, if that's what you're buying to eat for yourself instead of your dog, it doesn't spend very well, does it? So that's what's going on there. Next one here is from Marty. Marty says, what type of ammunition would you recommend for a pistol caliber carbine? I have a 9mm carbine, high point 995. In my pistols, I wouldn't think of carrying anything other than hollow points. But what about my high point? Would hollow points make sense for home defense, even in the carbine? And while you're on the topic of hollow points, what brand do you prefer and why? Thanks. Um, Marty, I'm going to start out with probably my favorite go-to. For hollow point bullets is Spear Gold Dot. And then probably Hordney XTP. Like those two are probably the, the place that I am the most comfortable with. I don't have a lot of feedback on 9mm. I'm not a big 9mm guy. I have, actually at this point, I have one 9mm handgun because a very uh, treasured friend gave it to me as a gift. And it's a CZ and I really, really like it. Um, but I am much more in the school of thought of 357 SIG, 45 ACP, uh, 10 millimeter. These are more my go-to rounds, especially as we move into carbines. We're looking at things like 357 Magnum. Again, uh, 45 always think makes a good carbine round, 44 Magnum, etc. If you're looking in the world of pistol caliber carbines, uh, 40 Smith and Wesson becomes a 10 millimeter in a carbine, and uh, that's pretty nice. And a 10 millimeter carbine is kind of on my to do list in, in, in my life at some point. Um, so 
here's what I'm going to say. Because I've done so much work with taking pistol rounds and putting them into carbine-length guns and using them to do things like kill animals, I can tell you that the concept that you might get under uh, penetration with hollow-point ammunition put through a carbine is a thing. It is a real thing. When I hunt with a .357 out of a rifle, knowing the gain that we get in muzzle velocity, I go to a flat-point ammunition instead of a hollow-point. Now, there is a big difference in trying to put a bullet through both lungs of the deer sideways at 75 yards um, and shooting somebody in the face trying to break into your house. Let's just be honest about that. However, what I would say is if you're going to use hollow points in your 9mm, step up to the heavier weight stuff. Instead of stuff that's in the 120 class, like the 140-150 class, 147 grain uh, Spear Gold Dot, I don't care who makes the ammo, but a Spear Gold Dot, Hornady XTP, uh, any of your premium, uh, well-constructed hollow point rounds should be fine. If you feel more comfortable, I can make a good case to going to something like a flat point or something like that. The thing is with 9mm, unlike 357 mag, even though they're the same caliber basically, um, most of the flat point ammunition in 9mm I'm aware of is full metal jacket. And I don't, I, again, I don't want to be shot with any of this shit, right? You can make a new round called like, the, the the 15 uh, impotent, which would be like a, a, a 22 super short, neck down to 15 caliber. And I still don't want to get shot in the face with it or anywhere else, thank you. Because it still could be lethal, right? And hurt like hell. But for self-defense, I'm looking for an expanding round. And it's not so much I'm concerned about over-penetration going through the wall and killing my neighbor or what have you, but... I, if I'm using something for self-defense, I want trauma. I want hemorrhaging. I want bleeding. Because that's what actually shuts down the attacker. So that I'm, I'm going to lean in that heavier bullet direction. But the reason I don't just say that is one of the real advantages in having a carbine and a handgun in the same cartridge is being able to share ammunition. However, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Because if you get into some long-term shortage situation, use whatever the F you have. Military ball, fine. 123 grain round of whatever you got. That's what you use. So, you know, assuming you're going to be using this for self-defense, you would have this kitted up, ready to go, preloaded mags, what have you, and having you know ammo for that, I think, would be fine. But, you know, again, a spear gold dot. As far as manufacturers of ammunition... Again, I'm not a 9mm guy, but I love Federal, um, especially when you go into hunting world, Federal premium ammo. Uh, law enforcement-grade stuff would be another place to look. But again, I just can't give you too much on the 9mm because it's, it's not what I generally carry. It's not what I generally use. I kind of fell out of love with the 9mm a long time ago. Um, I grew up shooting 1911s. I mean, I was shooting 1911s when my hands were barely big enough to do it well. And so I kind of stay in that. Even when I'm off the 45 ACP in a 1911, I'm still more into that frame. Like the SIG 239 frame is very, very similar. 
Um, and to be fair, the CZ that my friend gifted me has a very 1911-like feel to it. Um, but 9mm, I might even say that I don't carry that thing because I kind of really, really like it. I just haven't spent the time uh, on it that I have on other cartridges. So that's as good as I can do. If anybody uh, has really put a lot of effort into figuring this out and you have a specific brand and load that you are comfortable with in 9mm with the added velocity from the carbine with bullet composition, let us know and we'll get it out there for Marty. Next up, Kyle says, I have two points of listener feedback. Number one, after listening to many of your permaculture and garden design shows and now a couple of cooking shows, I am shocked and honestly a little disappointed you've never mentioned Spicebush, America's native spice perennial. And they are super beautiful. Well, you know, Kyle, I do wake up in the morning and the first thing I think to myself is, gee, I hope in my efforts with TSP I don't disappoint Kyle, right? Because, God, if Kyle's disappointed... Because I didn't mention something. No, seriously, Kyle. You want to know the truth? Do you know why I really like this email? I didn't know what the hell Spice Bush was. We're going to put that on the shelf and come back to it with another cool perennial. Uh, then here's Kyle's bigger question, right? Because that wasn't really a question. That was just a complaint that he was disappointed in me. Uh, I've listened to recently about the coming seminar revitalizing small towns. I've been toying the idea of forming mutual aid coalition, small town, con- county, my farm is on. I grew up in a small town, but most of my organizing experience has been in anarchist communities in large cities. Do you have any advice in organizing things like this in small town? The goal is not explicitly to be an anarchist group, but rather a mutual aid group with the goal of forming resilient, tighter-knit communities that rely less on city, county, state police while getting people the help they need in return, receiving the help one needs. Thanks, Kyle. Well, I don't think that in most small-town communities you should go in and say, hey, I want you to join my anarchist group anyway, because the majority of people in these communities are good, solid people, but they've had a healthy dose of the America programming, so anarchist sounds like a big, scary word. I don't even know that most of the people in a small town are generally ready to hear, at least as a lead-in, voluntarist, because sooner or later they'll Google that word, find out it's a form of anarchism, and now it's all scary again. And I don't think mutual aid is even the way to go here. This is what I would do to form a group. Create things that make people want to spend time together. That's it. And lead with the relationship. If you can create a group of people that, like, let's say once a week, get together and do stuff together, then they're going to help each other when they need to. I mean, if you think about this, what we're trying to do is recreate what our grandparents in all these small towns had. Let me tell you something. When I, especially by the time I got into my teens, you know, I had a car and I would need things and stuff a little bit more than a grandma or grandpa could just do for you, right? You know, when you're eight, two bucks solves your problems. You got two bucks and a chore, you're good, right? You know, taking a kid fish and he's happy for a day at least, if not a week. So you get up a little bit older and like, okay, my, I have like this problem with my car and I can't figure out how to fix it. Ah, I'll tell you what, go down to Andy Slifko's garage. Well, I don't have a lot of money. Just tell him I sent you and, and tell him what's going on. He ain't going to fix it for you, but he'll tell you what you can do. And you'd go down and Andy's like, who are you? I'm, I'm, I'm Jack Spirico Jr. Uh, who? Spirico? Which Spirico? 
I'm, uh, I'm Andy, you know, uh, and Biff's uh, grandson. Oh, Biff's grandson. Oh, come on in. Uh, uh, just wait a minute. You know, like he's calling your customer. Like, you want to wait a minute. I got to talk to Biff's grandkid. You tell him, oh, here's what you need to do. And if you go over to Muskrat Purcell's junkyard, he probably has one of those because I just took one of those and sent it off to him because we really couldn't do nothing for it. But I think that was still good on it. And don't let him overcharge you. You shouldn't pay more than 15 bucks for that part. You go over to Muskrat Purcell and you, yeah, well, well, Andy Slifko sent me and I'm Biff's grandson and they said this. Oh, hell, you can just have it. I mean, that, that was how things were in all these small towns before the wheels came off and they fell apart. And it wasn't like they said, let's get together and do a mutual aid society. Uh, it was that people got together, period, and did the things that needed to be done when they needed to be done. There's also something else that's, that's happened, and I'm not a church-going person, but I do acknowledge the influence of having something that compels assembly. And there's a lot less church attendance in these and throughout the whole country. Church attendance is down. About the only place that's up is in the big mega churches where they've turned it into a, a, a performance every Sunday. You know, um, in general, small town churches are not growing, and they're not even maintaining. And the people that are going there are mostly the older people. And so, there, one of the things that really made America strong was the institution of churches. It didn't matter whether it was Catholic or Methodist or Jewish temples or whatever, but the fact that pretty much everybody that lived in these communities was at some church every Sunday, and therefore these people all saw each other and talked to each other, and because they weren't, you know, 5,000-seat megachurches or something, you know, it's a few hundred people, if you are the same place as one to 200 people every week, in time, you will know every single one of those people, especially the way society used to run in these small towns. So that created natural networks, and that's what we need to do here. Instead of mutual aid, we need to be building networks. And I think we should build our networks based on our ideals and our interests. And I feel like, I, for instance, I feel like I missed an opportunity on Sunday, but you just don't know who people are. I met this dude at... Lowe's. I had to go pick some stuff up to finish the wicking beds I put in this weekend. New videos out on it, by the way. And he saw that I had some baskets there, and uh, you know, for like planting pond plants for the new pond. And he started asking me about aquaponics and hydroponics and ponds and what fish would survive here. And, you know, I know a lot about all that stuff, and I gave him a lot of really good information. And I kind of felt like I should have said, "Hey, man, why don't you come on by and, and, and check out the ponds and all?" But you know, it's a complete stranger in a big city, and it's just kind of a weird thing. But, you know, I could use something like next door and start to build out of our own neighborhood kind of a group that gets together and maybe just throws down with some food and stuff like that and, and goes and just checks out other people's properties and stuff and, and does kind of, you know, let's talk about this stuff, let's learn about this stuff, whatever, and build more strong local community that way. And it doesn't matter what it is. All that matters is that the interest is common. Because you get people together around a common interest, and this is what's going to happen. One of them is going to be in the medical field. You get 20 people together randomly. You just take 20 people and get them together randomly. And I'm going to tell you right now that one of them is going to be a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a doctor, or something like that. It's going to happen. One of them is going to have some kind of engineering skills. 
you know, and there's going to be somebody that knows about computers and automation and programming and stuff like that. And you go down a list of the things that you would look for in a group. And if you get a large enough group of randomly assembled people together, especially around a common ideal that has some inkling for that anyway, right? Like, like you say, it's a gardening group or something. Then you're going to end up with a pretty broad spectrum group that has a lot of ability to perform, you know, mutual aid and help each other out. And the tighter that group becomes, the more of a mutual aid group it is, even if it's never called that. And I think that, that that's kind of what, and I, I've come back to this a hundred times because I've had the question a hundred different ways. I want to put together a prepper group. I want to put together a local, you know, uh, aid group or whatever. Put together a group of people that want to be together. That I mean, that is how you get this stuff to happen. So that's where I'm going to go there. Now let's talk about your spice bush. Thank you. Even though I, I'm saying it lightheartedly, but yeah, I always it interests me when somebody, I was very disappointed. Now, in your case, it was, I don't even know if you meant it that way for real, but I have people like, well, you said this thing politically, and I was very disappointed. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's it. That's what I do. I sit around and go, Tom, I, I really hope I don't disappoint Tom today because of something I say. Um, so I'm kind of joking with you on it. But I didn't ever know Spice Bush was a thing. So Spice Bush... Uh, apparently the berries can be dried and ground, and they kind of are a cross between like allspice and pepper. And there's a lot of really cool things that we can do with, with this spice bush. And it, it is beautiful, and it grows just about the entire United States. So I don't have a tremendous amount of information about it, but apparently in addition to the berries, the uh, leaves are aromatic as, as well as the twigs, and they can be dried and made into uh, a tea. So it, it seems like a really great thing to, to include in our edible landscapes. And apparently a lot of butterflies and some of moths are uh, really rely on this bush a lot as well. So that's more diversity, including uh, various swallowtails. There's actually a butterfly called the spice bush swallowtail, which clearly has a uh, an affi affinity with uh, spice bush. Which now that I think about it, maybe I should have known more about the spice bush thing because I did know about that butterfly. And then the eastern swallowtail, and they're just like like my favorite butterfly to see around. The eastern swallowtail is the the black and yellow, really pretty butterfly. So I'm definitely going to be adding this to my landscape because it seems like it's hardy. It'll survive just about anywhere really seems to like northeastern woods, which may put a little bit of a challenge on things down here for me. But uh, it's definitely something to look into. Uh, there's lots of people that sell spice bush um, for planting, uh, different varieties, different flower types, etc. So apparently it's not just a, a native wild plant. There's been some work on developing different varieties of it as well. And uh, so now I know. Now, because I read this email today and I decided to include it in today's show... I don't have much more for you on spice bush, but it does make me want to tell you about another plant that I just found here on my property. It's been here forever. I didn't know it was a thing. One of the students that came to the pond building workshop a couple weeks ago had taken some of the uh, foraging Texas walks and comes up to me and shows me this plant and says, do you ever put this on your salad? And I said, no, what is it? He goes, it's peppergrass or pepperweed is another way it's called. And uh, I, I said, you know, let me try it. And I tasted it. And I got to tell you, it tastes peppery. What it really tastes like, and I had a lot of people uh, taste the ones I'm growing to, to see the comparison, is nasturtium. 
Uh, nasturtium leaf, and it, it's a little peppier than nasturtium leaf. It's closer to what um, nasturtium flower tastes like. In fact, I would say it's about in the middle as far as how spicy it is. It's spicier than a nasturtium leaf and not quite as spicy as a nasturtium flower, which can really hit you with that. And whatever that hot, peppery compound in it is... It, it must be very similar, if not the same compound, or have one of the same compounds, because the flavor is almost identical. Uh, I put because I can't explain how to identify spice bush or peppergrass on a podcast. I put some resources and links, and please always be careful whenever you eat anything from the wild that you've got it identified correctly. But this peppergrass, like I, he showed me the tips of it, and I'm like, I think I've seen that. So show me the plant. So he's like, well, it's everywhere. I'm like, where? He looks around, it's nowhere, right? And we walk over by the duck area, and it's tons of it. And then I realize, oh, that stuff, that stuff's everywhere. And when I look up peppergrass or pepperweed on Google, all I get is this maelstrom of what a noxious, horrible weed it is that needs to be controlled. But you pull these little, and you can eat the leaves too, but you pull this little spiky thing off of it, and the seeds on it, you can either just grab and just like pull it like out of your mouth and like strip them all off with your teeth, or you can do it with your fingers, and it's fantastic. I've been putting them on my salads lately. It's also known as poor man's pepper. And apparently this was a big thing a uh, long, long time ago in the state of Florida that it was called poor man's pepper, You know, like let's say during the Depression and all, because it was a way you could get this spice without spending any money because the stuff just grows everywhere. It also turns now I haven't tried this yet. I just found out researching it, so I'm going to give it a try and see. But apparently you can pull it up out the ground, and grade the root up, and when you grate the root up, it's basically a replacement for horseradish. Now, we'll see if that holds true. It may be poor man's horseradish, or it may be just like horseradish, but this is another thing that you can add to your foraging. That's not going to be a huge nutritional powerhouse, but it adds flavor and character. And that's one of the things that, you know, many wars were fought over spices. I mean, the, 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 the Silk Road moved, Silk, yes, but it also moved a hell of a lot of pepper and spices and seasonings because we crave these things in our lives. And to find out that we have these two plants, one is, I do believe spice, uh, peppergrass is an invasive, if you want to use that term, that it's not necessarily native to the United States. I haven't been able to verify that one way or the other yet. Spice bush is native. But either way, you have these, we'd call them now, if nothing else, indigenous plants. They live here, they grow here, they propagate here, they are here. They can add all of this flavor to our diets just by knowing they're there. And I'd say with spice bush, you might want to plant it with peppergrass. You might want to think about it because you know, it's going to be there. Um, and I have literally tons of this stuff growing here now that I know about it. But this is what I've noticed about it. And it, it the, the peppergrass is a brassia. So it's in the same family as like uh, like broccolis and stuff like that, but it's also the same family as mustards, and that's where it's getting this kind of hot peppery thing from. And if you see a field with wild mustard growing in it, and you look around, you'll probably find spice bush. Now, why do I have so much of it here? Because I have so much ground that is yet to be improved through my grazing of the ducks and things like that, and it's growing all in the areas of the least repair. The places that are most compacted and shitty and nothing else wants to grow there, this is a pioneering plant. So I don't necessarily see this as a plant that's going to take over your highly fertile areas. So margins and stuff like that may be a place where it's okay to toss a little seed and see what happens. But just understand, my understanding of this stuff is once you got it, you got it. 
So you may or may not want to introduce it. But I think we need to do probably more with foraging. Maybe I'll do a show uh, soon, a standalone show on foraging. And things that I forage for, things that you can forage for based on where you are, uh, and, and more importantly, how to learn what to forage and how to use what we forage. Because this is a big part of modern survival living. Nature has free food out there for us, so we should take advantage of it, especially with things like this. I mean, this pepper grass is kind of a game changer for me. I didn't know all this flavor was just living out there just waiting on me. Next up, Ty has a question for me. It's going to be a very short answer because the answer is don't. Uh, Ty says, are snake bite kits a good thing to use and keep in a first aid kit? Living in the Rockies in the U.S., we have a couple of varieties of rattlesnakes. Looking to expand my kit for hiking, camping, hunting, and whatnot. Basically wondering if they're still considered safe to use, their efficacy, and if applicable, some good ones to look at getting. Uh, thanks a lot. First time sending a question, but been listening for nearly eight years now. Keep it up, Ty. Ty, snake bite kits are as useless as, 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 as anything that you could spend your money on. Let, let's talk about why. This is what a snake bite kit, one form or other, will usually consist of there'll be some sort of a suction device there's the old ones that are made like little yellow suction cups that stick together like a case and hold everything else in there and you can put those you know one on each fang hole and squeeze down and they create a suction or there'll be something like it looked like a hypodermic syringe but instead of a needle it's got a little cup you can apply suction with that additionally they'll often include a small scalpel to make slices in the wound the snake has already created this is not good and then usually some form of tourniquet, which is supposed to slow the spread of venom. Let's take these one by one and prove how useless they are. So what you have to understand about a fang in a snake, and there are some exceptions with some rear-fanged snakes, but you're not going to come across them in the United States and get bit by one and need medical help. Uh, unless you're into herpetology and keeping these animals and giving them husbandry, every snake that's venomous in the United States is going to fall into the category of having a tooth that works like a hypodermic needle, including our little friend, the coral snake. It's just a different type of venom, smaller tooth, and a little harder for them to get the venom into you. But when all of them envenomate you, what you have is a hollow tooth. That's what the fang is with a hole in it. And when that snake bites and it gets those, those fangs into flesh, it injects that venom by muscular action that constrict the venom glands and pump venom into you. It is exactly the same way that a person would give you a flu shot. So you go down to your local pharmacy to get your flu shot, and they take a hypodermic needle, they take you know whatever number of cc's of this crap, they stick it in your arm and they plunge that needle. How much of that do you think you could suck back out with a suction cup? And the answer is very little to none. So it just doesn't work. What it might do is kind of compartmentalize the venom to a degree around the wound and create more necrosis than having it spread out a little bit. Maybe. So it just doesn't work. And if anything, it can make things worse. Now, I have seen bites where there is venom at the surface and even just applying like a very like less pressure than you would to pop a zit. Very mild amount of pressure. A little bit of venom will kind of seep out that never got in. Or maybe when the snake was withdrawing, it was continuing to discharge venom. If that comes off, wiping it away, hey, it's less venom in you, fine. But you're not sucking any of it out. It's not happening, don't do it. The next thing is the scalpel. Okay, you can cut giant slots in your arm. It's not going to change the fact that that venom's injected into your muscle. It's not coming out. 
So now you all, you, all you've done is increase the wound, increase the opportunity for infection, increase the opportunity for necrosis, which you know are you know uh, you know our our water moccasins uh, and our copperheads have a lot of necrosis capability. A lot of our rattlesnakes do too. Um, rattlesnakes we kind of go hematoxic, neurotoxic blends, uh, but you're you're like especially your cottonmouth water moccasin, however you want to call it. Really, really necrotic shit. And the last thing you need to be doing is digging around in there if you get bit. So that's out. Now, the next thing is the tourniquet. Okay, so what the tourniquet does is it restricts the flow of, of, of lymphatic fluid and blood and thereby compartmentalizes the venom. And while we don't want the venom to spread, we also don't want it compartmentalized because everything gets worse. So none of it works. And I have an article that you can look at at the Mayo Clinic says I'm right. So any of you have that shit, get rid of it. Just I don't care if your grandpappy told you it saved his buddy's life, get rid of it. So what do we do for a bit by a snake? What we want to do is we want to seek medical attention as quickly as possible, and we want to stay calm. And there is a balancing act in this. If you are somewhere where somebody can throw your ass in a car and take you straight to the hospital and call 911 on the way in and let them know you got a snake bite victim, that's the best situation possible. And you want to do as little physical activity if you're the person that's bit as possible. But if you're two miles from your car, then you got to make a decision, and it's probably going to be a decision to walk out. Calmly as possible, no matter you know what. There is the off chance that you have some kind of major reaction and die. It happens. There is the, the chance that you can be in really bad way by the time you get to where you can get help. But this means having a means of communication with you at all times, especially when you're you know, out backpacking, hunting, fishing, whatever. Um, and, and, and when possible, not going alone. Having somebody with you makes things a lot better. There also is that balancing where you have to make a decision. Like A lot of times people think, well, I'm only a mile from the road. I'll call for help. Well, we've had shows on search and rescue, SAR teams, and, you know, if, if you can't drive a vehicle there, extracting someone, you see what I'm saying? Like, there's a point where you might have to do it. I remember reading one account of a guy that was kayaking and actually doing research on, on eastern diamondbacks in the Carolinas, and he got hit with a really big snake. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. He can't call anybody. And he had to make a decision to row his boat, you know, like freaking a mile and that, that, that wears your ass out, and it pumps a lot of blood. And he, he, when he got to his vehicle, he was able to finally get somebody to help him, but he collapsed. He still lived, and that's the most important thing. There are snakes in the world that if you get bit by one, unless you're sitting in an ER, you have a real, even if you, like people survive, but you have a real chance of dying. There are snakes that you get bit by and you're sitting in an ER. If they don't have the right antivenom on hand, you have a good chance of dying. Understanding that people do die of bee and wasp stings. So there's an extreme level of everything. We don't have them here in this country. Now, there is always the possibility that you were really stupid and somehow got yourself bitten uh, you know, in, in the carotid artery or something by a big rattlesnake and it hung on you and pumped every ounce of blood and you're in real... In general, rattlesnakes, copperheads, moccasins, even corals, you have time. You have time. You're going to be okay. You're going to be able to go get medical treatment. Almost every hospital either has or has relatively quick access to the antivenom 
that we need here in the United States. It's either going to be probably Crofab for all of your uh, your pit vipers, your rattlers, etc., uh, or it's going to be the, the specific uh, anti-venom for coral snakes and, and relatives of the, the cobra family, because that's, that's one of the things that makes corals such a, a dangerous snake. The thing about corals is if you get bit by a coral, you probably had it coming. I'm not saying nobody's ever been legitimately bitten by a coral snake. Legitimate bite is you're walking around, mind your own business, you don't see the snake, step on a snake, it bites you in the leg, which happened to me when I was 19. Sucks, right? Um, That's a legitimate bite. And that's probably 5 to 10% of total bites in the United States. The majority of bites in the United States occur to men between the ages of 15 and 35 and take place mostly on the hand or the forearm, meaning... Somebody screwed with the snake. So if we don't screw with the snake, we're not going to get bit. Corals are really hesitant to bite. Um, and this leads to a lot of bites because they're so calm and they're so hesitant to bite that people think they can pick them up and screw with them and then they get bit in the finger. Oh, it's a little snake bit me in the finger. Yeah, you got cobra venom in you, dumbass. Right? You need, you need anti-venom. Um, But go get medical help. Now, I wanted to throw in something here about whenever the government tells you you're going to fix something. I'm not going to go through the whole thing because I have one closing segment and then we're out for the day. But the actual cost of the actual underlying cost of, let's say, Crofab antivenom that's necessary to treat a person who was bitten by uh, an eastern diamondback is about $14. The average medical bill, this is going back quite a few years now, because it's closer to $20,000 now, is about $14,000. If you read this article, you'll see that regulations and compliance with regulations, along with hospitals inflating the cost so that they can negotiate with the insurance providers, is over 80% of the underlying cost of treatment. In other words, the problem they say that they're going to solve is the problem that they're act not created, they're actively creating and, and causing right now. So just let that sink in and read the article if you want. That brings us to our last segment. Zach sends me this. And Zach's a guy that emailed me about how can I be an anarchist and still say that I support the individual soldier? And I, I answered that already. And I did have a little bit of a jack rant there, and you know, people that that really do come down hard on the guys that serve and don't understand how noble most of those who serve are. Um, Zach, I think, does as I read what he's going to write. His follow-up to me is heartfelt and very, very logical, reasonable, and level-headed. Question. Why would you enlist or not enlist at 17 knowing what you know now? And by the way, Zach, I did enlist at 17, so good on the number. Uh, Or where does the responsibility for bad foreign policy end and why? Details. Jack, thanks for addressing my last question on the show. I think I may need to clarify since I tried to keep my last email shortest to make it easier to put on the air, I certainly did not come, intend to come across as demeaning. I lost a grandfather in World War II, a grandfather in Korea, and an uncle in Vietnam. My father is retired, but still deals with injuries from Vietnam. My two brother-in-laws serve now. I'd say that war and military service has indirectly affected me, possibly more than the average American, even though I haven't served. Um, first of all, I appreciate that. And I just want to say... 
while being family of those who served, is in its own way a form of service. It is not a replacement for it. And I don't care if every single person in your family went in the military except you, you will still not really understand what it is to serve, having not served yourself. Okay? Um, he says, I'm a, I'm a vegetable and livestock small-scale farmer. One of our farmhands is 18 and considering entering the military. Everyone around him is giving him the raw, raw, serve your country speech, including a recruiter. Well, that is their job. I happen to be arguing that defending others is an honorable act, but the majority of U.S. military conflicts over the last 50 years have been unjust and a waste of blood and treasure. I've asked him what he knows about Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, or even Vietnam and Korea, He has a surface-level understanding but can't explain why the U.S. was involved in those conflicts. I asked if he thought it was important to know why we go to war. His response was somewhat flippant in that smarter people than him can make the decision. I was surprised at this because kid's smart. I think he can do awesome things. He loves racing ATVs, and he's developing a welding skill, and he works hard for us at the farm. One area he does enjoy is debate. I've been able to influence him some pro-liberty topics on our trips to the farmer's market. Responsibilities for one's actions seem like a good conversation for our next trip. Thus, the reason for my clarification, to better word it, where does the responsibility for bad farm policy end? Is it just with politicians or also the generals and the whole military or all the United States citizens or something in the middle? The reason why the responsibility question is important, not just for me, I had already had an opinion. As I said in my last email, good people can disagree. I'm totally fine with you if you and I have different opinions on it. It doesn't change my enjoyment of the show, but I think the responsibility question is much more important for him. So I want a further clarification on where you drew the responsibility line for foreign policy and why. This is a long email, so I understand if it doesn't work on air. Also, if you prefer to do just more detail on perhaps why you would or would not enlist, knowing what you know now, what would that be helpful for him too? Zach, this is a hard question for me. And I, I think I'd have to profess it with, back to you with, well, is Jack Spirico 17 in 1989? Or is Jack Spirico 17 in 2019? In both cases, knowing what I know now. The military was a bit of a different place in 1989 than it is today. And while we have always had our problems with our interference in parts of the world, yes, I know Desert Storm happened there, but I was probably, probably of all the modern conflicts, it was probably the one that was handled the best as far as execution and not keeping our finger in the pie and walking away when we were done. And I got to go back and look at that and say, you know, look at all the people that died in Iraq because of Desert Storm 1. And I was part of that. At the time, though, without knowing what I know now, I was proud that I served. I was proud that I served. I also didn't shoot anybody, never fired a shot at anybody in anger in my life. Still happened to this day. Hope I'll go in the box someday. And Actually, I want to get burned at sea in a Viking funeral, but that's near here and near there. I hope I never have to take anybody's life, ever. In fact, while I got in quite a few fights as a youth, and I was kind of proud of my physical abilities... Um, I hope I never physically harm another human being again for the rest of my life because there's just no need for it unless it's in defense. And if, if nobody's hurting me or hurting someone else, then I don't have to, and that means good, right? But I absolutely believe that service in the United States Army and specifically service in the United States Army Airborne Corps probably saved my life from being one that was menial and wasn't going to go anywhere. 
and had a pretty good chance sooner or later at ending me up incarcerated. I believe the Army worked for me. I don't believe it will necessarily work for everyone, but I believe the Army worked for me. I gave the Army a few years of my life, and the Army gave me an incredible life. So it's hard for me to look back and say I wouldn't do it. And this is the bigger picture. Had I not, would it have changed anything on the broad spectrum? In other words, if Jack Spirigo didn't join the Army in 1989, would the Army have changed? And I don't think that it would have. And I also served with some people that were excellent leaders, that taught me a lot about leadership. And there's not a lot of places that a 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid can learn those things. On the other side of it, if it's today, knowing what I know now and having formed the opinions that I know now, I couldn't join today. I might even want to, but I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to do it. My heart wouldn't be in it. But as far as responsibility, you see, what you're not understanding, there's a reason they recruit us when we're 17, 18, 19 years of age. We're stupid. You say this kid's smart, I'm sure he's smart. I was smart. I was also stupid. If you think about the level of risk inherent to the mindset of especially the average 18-year-old male, it's extreme. We are manipulated easily at that age. And his response of people smarter than him know is an honest answer as far as he's concerned. It makes sense. This can't all be wrong. And he probably sees this as an opportunity, and it may well be. As far as where does the responsibility end? I think the responsibility ends at the point that you truly know the situation. Just because you told him what you told him doesn't mean he believes you. It, and it certainly doesn't mean that he knows. There's a difference from believing something and knowing something. I know in my heart of hearts now that the United States needs to not be screwing with other countries. I saw somebody flipping their shit on Facebook today because China and Russia are conducting joint military operations in the South China Sea. How dare they conduct Uh, operations with their allies in the waters off the coast of their country. We conduct oper you know, training exercises and, and drills with our allies in the South China Sea, and we're way the hell over here. We have no leg to stand on bitching about that. Well, they're an adversary. They see us as an adversary. We're the ones that actually dropped the only two bombs, uh, nuclear bombs were ever dropped on human beings in the history of the world. We did that, not them. We're the nation that's been at war 85% of our total existence, we've been bombing or shooting somebody. For 85% of the entire existence of our nation. What's the last country China invaded? What's the last country Russia invaded? It's not like there's not an answer to those questions, but boy, what's the last country the United States invaded? It's almost hard to figure out, because, well, which one really came... Huh? So, no, I wouldn't do it now. But I'm a different person now. And that is my point. And this is the point that I think a lot of people that I call purest assholes, and I'm not, I'm, clearly it's not you, Zach. Okay? Understand that. But the people that I refer to as purest assholes don't understand. While I am not the 17-year-old that joined the Army, who I am, I am in large part because I was that 17-year-old that joined the Army and served. And 
The reality is we are going to have an army. And they are going to send people to places that we shouldn't go. And if you take all the really good quality people and tell them not to go, then you might as well just fire up the Terminators and send robots. The fact that the good people go, I think, is actually one of the checks on the system that it can only go so far. I also know that you can be programmed almost like a computer by the military. I know that's a thing, too. It's a very difficult situation. As I said, though, as I said, though, we need everyone. And some of the finest people today are serving or have priorly served. And shitting on their service does nothing to advance our message of voluntary association. The message is so powerful. This is not a political campaign where I'm going to poll higher by going negative on my opponent. This It doesn't work here. The, the positive message that all actions between all people should be voluntary and that force and violence should only be used in defense of self or other innocent parties and that property, right, property that's rightfully acquired is the property of the person that rightfully acquired it and no one should ever be able to take it away from them no matter how many people put their hand up and say that you should. That's it. That's a, it's such a simple, intrinsically human message. There's no need to alienate some of the highest quality people in the world because you disapprove of what they're doing or what they have done because you're not them. You don't see the world through their eyes. Now, a young person like you're talking about, I really want them to understand what they're risking more than their responsibility for being part of the machine because we're all part of the machine. Until you go full-on primitive, move up in the mountains, and don't use more roads, and I mean, just go away, you're part of the machine. Now, I can make a case for why I'm part of the machine. I haven't done that. I think I can be totally justified, so I'm not saying that. But we are all part of the machine. He has to make this decision for himself. My concern is that we are filling the minds of our youth with this concept of fighting for freedom, And they can come home missing a leg, an arm, their eyes, their balls. Before they even really learned what they were there for. And just as me not joining the army in 1989 would not have changed the world, them not joining it isn't going to change it either. And you're risking this for this concept of fighting for freedom. And I'm going to tell you right now, the place I agree with the purist on the anarchist side is Our soldiers right now may believe they're fighting for our freedom, but they're fighting for our geopolitical interests. They're doing it for the people at the top that control the show. That kid going off to Afghanistan, going off to Syria, going off to wherever they send him, will not make you living where you are any more free. And if anything, it will put at risk the freedoms that we claim to cherish as we build more animosity against this country, more potential terrorists, and therefore more justification of accelerating the police state that we live in. So no, Jack Spierko in 2019, knowing what I know now, would not join the United States Army. I don't know if I can say that about Jack Spierko at 17 in 1989. And if I'm really that same person, 
if I'm really that same person, the only reason I can aff- this is the most important thing you can understand here. The only reason I can afford to say no is because I truly know what I know now. So I don't just know all of these things about the United States government and our intervention in the world. Because you can't learn that because somebody tells you that. You have to experience it. You have to mature. Again, that's why they don't recruit people that are 40. It's not just because they physically don't have the ability of a 20-year-old, but they think too damn much. They, you know, There's very few people that stay past a 20-year retirement in the military because you start to think too much. Do they want people that think, but yet are still under the control of the state? And what I would also know is what my other path was. See, when I was 17 and paying my own bills and living on my own, because I moved out a week before I turned 16 because my home life was that bad. What I knew is I got this score on this thing called an ASVAB. And this guy said I could have a job. I could get the hell out of there. I could go do something that I really wanted to do. I could be part of something bigger than myself. That's what I knew then. I knew I had an opportunity, and I knew that I would be considered good and noble for doing it. That's what I knew. And for the vast majority of people, that's still the case. So the only way I could have... That, that's the thing I'm talking about. Like You can afford to think this way because the system that exists is defended by people that do this hard work. And I would understand that too. And I would understand that there were other options for me at that time. However, you're talking about something that's not possible. Altering the space-time continuum, even at the individual level. Put me back at 17 and tell me, don't join the Army, and I know I'm never going to end up meeting my wife, having my son, having my grandkids. I might even have some other, I might not ever do this podcast. We all walk the path. We all walk the path that is there for us to walk. And we should not condemn the other man for his path. We can only look to what's next. And that's our reasonable expectation for our fellow man. What will you do now? What will you do next? I hope that answers it for you. But you will never hear me bashing the individual soldier You will never hear me referring to everybody that supports cops in any way as bootlickers. I have seen bootlickers. I know what they look like. I'll call them when I see them. But people that simply just overall support law enforcement because of the way they understand things to be, they're not bootlickers. The person that says the guy that got beaten to death on the side of the road had it coming because he didn't do what he was told to do, even though he did, that's a bootlicker. And hopefully we can see that distinction. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Here's what we got today. If you want to support this show and the work that we do, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. You do that, you help support the show. It's really, really easy. 50 bucks a year. Use your discounts, get your money back, and support the show that education entertains you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Check it out. Go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, along with first responders like EMTs and paramedics, all of you qualify for a discount. Email, email me before you join. TSPC, 
uh, service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I will send you the discount code. Email is always jack at the survival podcast.com. The other way you can support us, do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. That's where you will find all of my reviews of Amazon items, but you can just check out the deals of the day on Amazon, whatever. As long as you start there, you will help support us no matter what you eventually buy. Here is what I have got for you today. It is the Ranger Blind Stove from Camp Chef. Um, this stove, to me, is a game changer in your life if you have an electric stove in your house. Um, I go through in my review four areas of value, but one of the areas is lifestyle improvement. Because let me tell you one of the things I do with my Ranger stove. Sometimes it's really beautiful out like it was this weekend, and I cook my duck egg omelets and bacon out on the porch in the beautiful weather instead of in the house. And when I used to have an electric stove, this thing was everything whenever I would go cook outside because I had actually a gas range. I would say that the burners on this stove are almost as powerful, I'd say they are as powerful as the burners on my gas range in my kitchen, which is a very high-end, you know, one tier below restaurant quality piece of equipment. And it's a hundred bucks. And it's on sale right now for ten bucks off. So check it out, the Ranger Tube Line Stove from Camp Chef. And remember, you can help support the show. Uh, no matter what you buy, as long as you start at tspaz.com. That brings me to our song of the day. And as I said in the intro segment, we're doing a whole week of songs based on fairy tales. And there's actually quite a few fairy tales built into Enter Sandman by Metallica, one being the Sandman who puts the goop in your eyes when you're asleep, another one being Pan, uh, being Peter Pan, Take My Hand Off to Never Never Land. This song actually started out a, a, a bit different, honestly. It was originally going to be about Sid, sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, when the baby dies inexplicably uh, in its crib, the line often never, never land was disrupt the perfect family and Sandman killed the baby. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion about it and it, they decided to make the song a lot more universal and maybe a little less gruesome. Um, it ended up being a more of a mental thing where the kid gets manipulated by what the adults say. And you wake up with that stuff in your eyes that supposedly has been put there by the Sandman and it makes you dream. So the guy in the song tells this little kid about that and he kind of freaks out and he can't get to sleep after that. It works the opposite way instead of Uh, a soothing thing, uh, tables have turned. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. And and it, what it makes me think of is one of my favorite writers is Stephen King. And he said, the, the key to the novels that I write that scare you is I write about the things that you thought were your, under your bed when you were a little kid. And I don't really explain the thing if at all, until the very end. Because what your mind can create for you, what your mind can create for you is scarier than anything that actually is. Including when that thing isn't even a thing. So in this story, this child is disturbed and can't sleep. Sleep with one eye open, right? Gripping your pillow tight. Yeah, scared of something that's not even real. And so many people in this world live... Scared of things that aren't even real. To me, that's what this song's all about. Not the little kid in his bed, but the grown-ass adult who fails to take action because of fear that someone might someday maybe take it away from him. Think about that, because it's going to tie in well to tomorrow's show, 
We're going to talk about how society has been controlled for hundreds of years in the name of something that most of us profess to be fans of. And is it really that thing, or is it some bastardized version of it, or is it not even that thing? And what is that thing? Well, for tomorrow's show, that thing is capitalism. For today, it's the Sandman. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.